Today we are talking about the Northern Kingdom. I, I, I was kind of debating on how to do this part of Israel's history because there's two Israels. There's the Northern Kingdom of Israel and the Southern Kingdom of Judah. And I thought, well, why don't I kind of demonstrate them both at the same time and follow the timeline? That way you can kind of see what's going on. And it'd be a lot of hopping back and forth, but we'd be talking through the ages. So I started preparing the PowerPoint, and then I went to pull it up at 2 o'clock to put finishing touches on it. And guess what wasn't there? The whole file was deleted, gone. I thought, I thought well, wait a minute. There's got to be a copy of it somewhere. So I started looking. No, I couldn't. Yeah. So there wasn't one in the trash. There wasn't one. And I, I have it on an online drive. I checked recently deleted files because it supposedly keeps files for 30 days. Guess what wasn't there? <laughs> yeah. So um, so that was gone. Um, that included all the all of the previous slides, too. So I'm going to have to collect all that information and, and again, but that's okay. Um, so what I'm going to do today is um, basically, basically we're going to talk about the Northern Kingdom. If you want to, um, the first page, front and back, will give you a list of all the kings, and they're, they're grouped up by dynasty. And uh, you'll see one of them on there we'll get to that has dynasty in quotes. That's because one king reigned for one month and then another family took over. So that really wasn't much of a dynasty, but, you know, there it is. But in the last two pages, this is a copy from a book um, that I actually have right here. It's Leon Woods, A Survey of Israel's History. I have no idea where this book came from. I just knew that somewhere along the way I picked it up. I think it was probably left behind by a previous pastor, and so I held on to it. And now I started reading it, and I was like, well, why would you leave that behind? That's, that's good information for, for this whole thing. So in there, he has some charts, and you can kind of see he does it by year. Um, the first page is most of what we'll cover uh, tonight. The top is the southern kingdom, and the bottom, and then the middle right here is the northern kingdom. There's some prophets in between and then some of the other countries. So if you want to take a look at that as we're talking about this, this will kind of help you get your bearings on when we're talking. And the years along the top are all B.C., counting down to the birth of Christ. So anyway, if you want to take a look at that, that should be helpful. Um, if uh, I've got some extra copies as well. So if you... Um, if, if you know of someone that might be interested in that, you know, feel free to take them a copy. Um, so what we have in the northern kingdom, if you'll remember, the kingdoms divided uh, after Solomon's death. After Solomon's death, Solomon had put a real heavy load on a lot of Israelites. They were working hard, um, but uh, a lot of them for, were slave labor, basically, for Solomon. And he was heavily taxing people. So they came, a coalition of the northern tribes came to Rehoboam, led by Jeroboam. And, and Jeroboam and, and these elders of these tribes basically said, look, your father has put incredible, uh, uh, incredible amounts of work and very high taxes on us. Give us some relief and we will serve you faithfully. And Rehoboam, uh, he talks to some of his father's advisors, some of the old wise men in the country. And you know a guy as wise as Solomon must have had some good advisors too. 
You know, because wise people don't hang around stupid people. They hang around other wise people. And, and so a wise person seeks wise counsel all around him. So you know he had to have some pretty wise advisors. And they tell him, yeah, do what they're asking. Give them relief now. They will serve you till the day they die. You're not going to have to worry about anything from these folks if, if you give them this. He talks to his friends and his friends say, oh, no, no, no. You got to show them who's boss. Rehoboam decides to do what his friends suggest. And of course, we know behind the scenes, it's really God working this out because God has already uh, prophesied to Jeroboam through his prophet that Jeroboam would be king over 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. So sure enough, that's what happens. Uh, uh, he says, you think my, my father gave it to you rough? I'm going to give it to you even rougher. You're going to pay even more. You're going to do even more work and you're going to like it. And they said, no, we're not. We're leaving. And so now you have two kingdoms. Now what's interesting is uh, Judah stays with Rehoboam. The 10 tribes of the north go with Jeroboam. Now, let's do some quick math. What's 10 plus 1? 11. Are there 11 tribes of Israel? No, there's 12. What happened to the other tribe? Probably uh, the tribe of Benjamin starts kind of toward the north, but ends up in the south. And probably, definitely by the time that Israel falls, Benjamin is fully on the side with Judah. But uh, in this process, they're kind of, kind of tussling over Benjamin because Benjamin is right between uh, Ephraim, where Samaria, the eventual capital, would be, and Judah, where Jerusalem, the capital of the south, is. And Benjamin's sandwiched between them. So there's like, they're, they're caught in a crossfire, so to speak. And so the Benjamites had to um, really had some tough choices in the days ahead. But 931 is about the time that Jeroboam becomes king over the northern kingdom of Israel. He has his 10 tribes and Jeroboam realizes that if, if we are going to be in rebellion against Judah, if we are going to be our own country, we cannot be going to Jerusalem every year to worship. And so he decides to build two temples, one in Bethel and one in Dan. Bethel is on, in the south, almost all the way south into Judah's territory. So Bethel would have been uh, uh, just about a border town, in just a few miles away from Jerusalem. Dan, on the other side, was up in the very northern part of Israel, far up above the Sea of Galilee. So you've got, you've got two opposite extremes here, but you've got a place nearby, at least within 40 or 50 miles of anybody uh, in the north, to go and worship at one of these sites. The problem is that these sites weren't exclusively um, godly. For example, in uh, Bethel, I believe it was, the, there was no Ark of the Covenant. So he used some golden calves. It's kind of the seat on which God would sit or the place where God would stand. What was frequently depicted in Canaanite religion is Baal standing with one leg on top of a golden calf and the other leg on top of another one. So he would kind of stand on two golden calves and that would be how Baal would be depicted oftentimes in Canaanite worship. 
And so you, you get the sense that, that Jeroboam is taking some of the cultures around him and taking some of their pagan practices and introducing them in. It, we don't think, scholars don't think that Jeroboam was so much trying to be pagan as much as he was trying to come up with a unique way for the northern kingdoms to worship God. He was fairly adept at being a king. He was a pretty good leader. Uh, that was already proven in the time of Solomon. He was, he was a taskmaster and rose quickly through the ranks. So he was a capable leader. The problem was by introducing this sort of um, pseudo-Yahweh religion, um, Yahweh being um, a form of the name of God, it, it, it would start Israel down the wrong path. And so God... Um, God wasn't pleased with Jeroboam. Eventually, in 910, Jeroboam dies, and his son, Nadab, takes the throne, rules for only about a year or so, not even quite two years, until he is killed by one of the commanders of the army, a man by the name of Baasha. And Baasha begins the second dynasty. Baasha's dynasty would reign from 905 to 885, for 909 to 885. And that would include Baasha, Elah, and Zimri. Now Zimri, so Baasha reigns for a while. He's an evil king. All of these kings of Israel are evil. They all turn against God. Okay? So, so there's no... Sorry, I just kind of took the whole, the whole anticipation about this. No, they're all bad kings. Baasha was a fairly bad king. He introduced some Baal worship in to uh, northern Israel as well. Eli, his son, took over, only reigned for about 18 months before he was killed by one of his officers, a man by the name of Zimri. Zimri had a whole seven days of reign. Zimri was uh, Eli's, um, excuse me, Zimri wasn't one of his officers. He, he didn't kill Eli, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm trying to do this from memory. So Zimri was his son. Zimri was assassinated by his military officer, a man by the name of Omri. As soon as Elah uh, died, Omri crowned himself king along with the military. And so he, he came in and he killed Zimri. And he begins the Omri dynasty. This dynasty was crucial. A hundred years later, you pick up some Assyrian documents in the times of, um, in the time, or around the time of the exile of the northern kingdom. You pick up Assyrian documents and they talk about the house of Omri. That's how important this dynasty was. Uh, Omri would be remembered for years and years and years and cultures all over as being kind of the head of Israel, even long after his death. He, he took control in 885. And he basically brought some stability with Elah not serving very long and Zimri, his son, being killed after just seven days. It was kind of a tumultuous time in Israel. And so Omri uh, comes and he establishes the capital at Samaria. Up until this point, it had been in another town that was hard to defend. Um, very easy, very easy to attack. Um, so Omri takes control and brings some stability. He, he establishes Samaria as the capital. Samaria is a great place for a capital. It, it's, it's close to a bunch of trade routes. 
There's a lot of connection with local cities, but it's also easy to, to defend. It's hard to really attack from any angle. And so Samaria really presents kind of a stable place for a capital. Not terribly far north, nor terribly far south. Good centralized location. Plenty of natural resources around. So Samaria makes a good capital, and Omri is the one who put it there. Ahab, his son, was infamous. Uh, Omri was a bad king. He, he turns from God, uh, as they all do. But Ahab really sets the standard for evil among the kings of Israel. He marries Jezebel, who is the daughter of a Phoenician king, and she brings Baal worship full-fledged into Israel. And apparently Ahab is just happy to go along with it because basically she runs amok and does whatever she wants to do. I guess if you're married to a woman like that, uh, you, you don't really want to face her wrath yourself. So he's probably trying to look after his own interest in that. But she, she takes Baal worship up to the next level. And in fact, does it so much so that they have transformed those temples in Dan and Bethel into Baal temples. So you're not worshiping God along with Baal. She wants the worship of God completely abolished. And so she starts killing prophets of Yahweh. This is the time that Elijah really comes into his own as a prophet. So in Elijah, uh, you have this, this main prophet of God who's doing his primary ministry during the days of Ahab and Jezebel. And so the 450 prophets of Baal on top of Mount Carmel, that happens in the middle of this. And Elijah's standing up to them and, and he's, he's calling them out, basically saying, if Baal is God, serve him. If Yahweh is God, serve him. There was, a, there was a lot of mixing of, of people. Some people wanted to worship Baals and wanted to worship God, on the other hand, and back and forth. And, and Jezebel was doing all she could to get rid of Yahweh uh, worship in, in Israel in total. But even still, there were a lot of people that were trying to falter between two choices. And Elijah calls them basically to choose God or choose Baal. But whatever you choose, that's your lot kind of thing. So he challenges the prophets of Baal to challenge who, whose God will make fire fall from heaven. The prophets of Baal go all day long. They can't get anything. They are hooping and hollering, cutting themselves, singing and cursing and, and, and dancing and all kinds of mess. And Elijah just is laughing at them. Well, maybe, maybe he can't hear you. He might be on a journey. You know, he could be asleep. Maybe, maybe he's in the throne room taking care of business. No, no, he's just not a God. And then fire falls from heaven on Elijah's uh, sacrifice, and he orders the 450 prophets of Baal to be killed. And then Jezebel finds out, and Elijah ends up running scared. It's almost like, how can you do that and then immediately run away from one woman? But we're all human. We all have weaknesses. So anyway, it's during this time that Elijah is really doing the main part of his ministry. His ministry would extend beyond Ahab's rule, but this is kind of the principal portion. Um, and in addition to, uh, to that, we have the son. Uh, he rules until about 853 when Ahaziah picks up. Ahaziah um, rules only for about a year and a half, two years tops. 
um, before he dies and Jehoram becomes king. This is really when it transfers from Elijah to Elisha. And so a lot of the miracles of Elisha happen in this point. It's at this point that Damascus, um, the, the Aramean city-states really headed by Damascus, really create problems for the northern kingdom of Israel. In fact, the story of Naaman, the, the, the Aramean general who has leprosy, uh, uh, and Elisha telling him, go bathe in the Jordan River seven times. And, you know, he's complaining about, we got better rivers at home than this. And, and, and the servant's like, dude, are you crazy? That's easy to do. Just do it. <laughs> boy, isn't that, isn't that, um, boy, isn't that a spiritual lesson? But that happens during this time. Second Kings 5 has that story. Um, he rules for a little over 10 years down to the year 841. Until Jehu, if there is one king that is almost a good king, it's Jehu. He is the closest thing Israel has to a good king. His dynasty um, would be a, a major um, player in the history of Israel. Not so much uh, from a, um, not so much from from the early years of the dynasty as the later years of the dynasty. But Jehu was a captain in Jehoram's army and he is told by the prophet Elisha um, to destroy the Omri dynasty. Their wickedness had become so great that God calls Jehu to lead a rebellion against them to destroy them. And so God's prophetic word is fulfilled when Jehu starts to take up the sword. And man, when Jehu starts to take up the sword, you don't get anywhere close. You do not want to be anywhere close because not only does he kill the dynasty, not only does he kill the king and all the king's sons, he goes out and kills any advisors. He kills all the main uh, 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 leaders of the people. He is on a rampage. And in fact, it's so much so that he really kind of cuts off his own feet as he's ruling, because there's nobody capable to lead anymore because Jehu has killed them all. And so you have this, this, in one sense, this desire to do what God wants, but he goes way overboard with it. And um, he serves Yahweh at first, but not for long. Eventually he falls into the same um, pattern of worshiping false gods that his predecessors did. Israel at this time is being ransacked. Um, both Hadazel, or Hazael, excuse me, um, of Damascus and Shalmaneser III of Assyria just, just come through and ransack Israel all throughout Jehu's reign. He was not a very good leader. He was, man, if you need, if you need, if you need some dirty business taken care of, Jehu was your guy. But if you need a kingdom run, Jehu was not the guy. Unfortunately, and so so you have this king that looks a little bit promising at first, but he turns out to be a bad king as well. Jehoahaz was his son, reigned for a little while. Uh, I don't want to get into the weeds of too much of the details of each of these kings, um, but I really want to point out the important things. So so if you want to know more, just just read First and Second Kings. A lot of this stuff is in First uh, and Second Kings and Second uh, Chronicles, especially. So. 
you really want to get into the nitty-gritty of these kings' lives, that's the place to go. Jehoahaz reigns for about 16 years, and then Jehoash, his son, um, he fought against Amaziah, the king of Judah. We'll talk about him next time. Uh, in 2 Kings 14 is that recollection of that battle. Um, he, he was a pretty good military leader. Uh, apparently, he was successful against Amaziah um, in, in that fight. But one thing he does before he goes off to war with Judah, he anticipates it's going to be a long conflict. So he does something that no king had done before. And really something that um, it, you kind of kind of wonder. In fact, if you look, just look at the maps that I gave you um, on the first page of the two timelines. If you look, you'll see um, right here. Yeah. Jehoash has this rain, and it kind of has this uh, upside down, uh, sideways L shape. That's because he instituted his son, Jeroboam II, as king while he was king. In other words, there were two kings at the time. Jehoash is at war, and so he appoints his son as king in his absence. He's going to be the one who's acting king while he's gone. If something happens and he dies, his son already has the reign. It was a peaceful means of transferring the reign. If you look up at the top, you'll notice that Asa does the same thing with Jehoshaphat, and many of the kings along that uh, Judah line do that with their sons. And so that's a repeating process that happens in the south. But it hasn't happened until now with Jehoash in Israel. And, and it, it shows, a, a, it shows a, a real sort of mindset for, for stability, continuing the reign, because you know your son is already established as king. Nobody has a question on who's king. We all know who the king is. Now, some people might say, I'm going to try him to see if he's really worthy of being king. I think I can do a better job as king. But nobody's going to say, who's the king now? You know, because everybody knows for sure. And so um, 10 years that co-regency goes on until he dies and um, Jeroboam II becomes king. Jeroboam II is interesting up until this time, Israel has gotten a lot smaller. But under Jeroboam, the nation expands again. Jeroboam II is probably the greatest statesman king that Israel has. Omri, possibly better in, in some ways, but Jeroboam expands Israel's influence back to the days of Solomon and David along the north and along the east. So Transjordan drives and up in the north towards Syria, uh, all of that area that they had lost in battle after battle after battle, they are now gaining back under Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II was the Donald Trump, make Israel great again kind of a king. Uh, and, and he was quite adept at, at ruling as well. Um, Assyria was struggling at this point. They wouldn't have been able to do this without a struggling Assyria, but Assyria was dealing with uh, the Uratu Empire, which was far to their north, and so uh, trying to battle against them and having internal conflicts, Assyria, Assyria is at a low ebb. And so not only do you have Israel on the rise and Assyria on the decline, you also have the beginning of something that, that really uh, is, is a crucial point, and that is the era of the writing. 
prophets. Up until this point, you've got guys like Elijah and Elisha who are profiting, uh, profiting, 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 who are prophesying. There we go. <laughs> Sorry. They're not profiting. They're prophesying. They're delivering God's word to people. And they're being written down. But they're being written down in the Chronicles. They're being written down in Kings. They're being written down in a book uh, uh, that someone, a historian, is preserving their words for them. With the writing prophets, the prophets themselves take on the mantle of writing their own prophecies down. Or some of their students that they are teaching are writing their prophecies down for them. And so it's not coming from an outsider's perspective. It gives us the inside look in the prophet's mindset of what is going on. Jonah probably happens in this time. In uh, 763, June 15, 763 BC, there was a solar eclipse. Freaked out people of that day because they worshiped the sun and the sun is now being covered up by the moon and this is catastrophic. Okay, Now solar eclipses don't happen extremely often uh, where you can see full solar eclipses, but there was one in that point that did and they look at it and they are freaking out. And then you've got a prophet of God that smells like the inside of a whale who is telling you that in 40 days your city's going to be destroyed. You have been attacked from without. You are at a low point. You've had weak kings and your, your empire seems to be crumbling apart. What else are you going to do but repent? So this is probably the time that Jonah is doing his preaching. It's also the time of Amos. Amos, the shepherd, the one that said, I'm not a prophet, I'm just a shepherd. But God has given me these words. He preaches against the injustices of the time. In one passage, he says, what? Um, he says, is it? Yeah, it's Amos where he writes, let justice roll down like mighty waters. And righteousness like an ever flowing stream. It's Amos that says that. It's Amos that calls them to stop treating, oppressing the poor and the needy of the land. And in the time of Jeroboam II, Israel was prosperous. There were new treaties. They were expanding territory and influence. They were, they were for the first time in, in a long time, they were collecting tribute from other countries instead of sending tribute to other countries. And so they began to get, well, proud. And they began to live in prosperity. And so they needed some prophets like Amos and Hosea to call them back to repentance. Amos preached right around 750-ish, 755, 750, 745, somewhere in there. 760 maybe at the earliest. Hosea about the same time is preaching as well. He has gone through incredible difficulty in his marriage and God is basically showing him that what's happening in your marriage is what's happening to me with my people. And so he calls them to stop being unfaithful to their husband, to speak of your God as a husband. In fact, the name Baal literally means husband. And so the thought of your God being your husband is, is kind of a normal thought. Hosea basically alludes to God's relationship with Israel as a husband and wife. But the wife is being unfaithful. 
cheating on him every chance she gets. And so the husband goes and pays the price to redeem her from slavery and bring her back into his house because that's how much the husband loves the wife. And in the same way, God loves Israel enough to do that. It's a beautiful picture of God's restoration of what should be our attitude of repentance. So you have all that going on during the reign of Jeroboam. You also, uh, he, he had a son uh, that only reigned for about six months and before he was assassinated. Um, uh, Zechariah was his name. That's not the prophet. That's a different person altogether. Zechariah, the prophet, will meet in the exilic period. So after the exile, we'll see Zechariah, um, the prophet. So Shalom begins uh, the, what are we, fifth dynasty now. So the fifth dynasty, there were nine dynasties total. Shalom begins the fifth dynasty, in quotes. He only rules for a month and no sons take the throne. So not really much of a dynasty there. But Menahem takes over after killing Shalom. And Menahem, he probably should have left Shalom alive because now he has to deal with Tiglath-Pelesar III who is by far the strongest king that Assyria has seen to date. Tiglath-Pelesar is running uh, roughshod over the entire uh, area of the Holy Land. He is, he is taking tribute. He, he is oppressing people. He comes real close to overthrowing Jerusalem, or overthrowing Samaria, um, but ends up having to... to stop a little bit short, Menahem basically um, tries to pay him off. <coughs> but it's a heavy, heavy price. Pekahiah, his son, only reigned for about two years before he was assassinated. Do you see a pattern here? Like, like there might be a couple of kings in the dynasty and then there's an assassination. And Jehu's dynasty was five. It, it lasted to five generations uh, before that one was ended by assassination. Pekah, uh, after he assassinates Pekahiah, basically, um, the dates here, if you look at them, you'll notice Pekah takes over before Pekahiah takes over. What probably happens, the, the Old Testament tells us that there's a 20-year reign of Pekah and that it ends in a certain period of time, and we can trace that time to 732. We know that in 732, his reign is over. And so if he reigned for 20 years, he had to be reigning while the other kings were reigning. So what probably happened was he was probably reigning over in the Transjordan in like an offset, like as a, as a, uh, as a, a rebellious king of an area in the Transjordan. And uh, so he tries, he, he takes over in uh, 740 really, completely after Pekahiah, after killing Pekahiah, he tries, he, he works with Rezin, the king of Damascus, to force Judah's king, Ahaz, into joining a rebellion against Assyria. Ahaz doesn't want to join that rebellion and uh, instead ends up seeking help from Assyria, making a deal with the devil in this case. This is when Isaiah's ministry begins. Isaiah would minister from around 740-ish, 742 to 
to about 700. Um, Micah also was, uh, Micah and Joel were ministering also around this time, but they were ministering down in the south, so we'll talk about them uh, next time. Hosea takes over um, after Pekah's death. Hosea takes over, and he rules for about 10 years before Israel falls. 722, the Assyrians, the Assyrians actually started uh, in 724, besieging the city of Samaria. And in this uh, siege tactic of the day, you cut off all the supply lines, they can't get water, they can't get food, they starve to death until you break through the walls. All the while, you're trying to break through the walls. And all the while, you're trying to, to destroy their defenses so that you can just go ransack the city. But at the very least, you're either going to break down their walls and they'll be defenseless, or you're going to starve them all to death. Samaria resisted for more than 18 months before the city fell in 722. And when it fell, they did a couple of things. One of the things that they did um, was get a whole bunch of worthwhile folks out. Worthwhile being educated. People that could um, do something good for the kingdom. But they brought in a whole bunch of upper class people from other places and mixed them in. Gave them places to settle in the cities they destroyed. They, they would kind of help rebuild a couple of basic things just so there'd be some basic necessities, but they wouldn't really focus on rebuilding. Um, it really it really wasn't, and the Babylonians did somewhat, but the Persians really were the key ones that were like, we're going to rebuild everything and we're going to treat you really well because that was their way of keeping people from rebelling. What the Assyrians would do is they would take uh, these folks from other places and mix them in here and a bunch of folks from here and mix them in all over and basically seek to wipe out your identity so you wouldn't have a cultural heritage anymore. And that's what happened. Those foreigners would marry the Israelites who were left behind, and pretty soon you have a race of people known as the Samaritans. That's where they come from. Also, as part of this, you would have even more syncretized religion. You'd be worshiping Yahweh, and you'd be worshiping all kinds of other gods too. Because the folks that came in brought their gods with them. And so it really destroyed. In fact, even today, you'll hear talk about the lost tribes of Israel. This is where it comes from. It comes from the Assyrian policy. Many people can't trace back their Jewish heritage because they were from one of the northern tribes. And, and it just got wiped out over time. That's the story of the north. Not a very happy ending. I know. But this is a kingdom that resisted God all the way. They started with a, a different form of worship. Maybe it's not so bad. We're worshiping the right God. We're just doing it in a different place. And maybe we got a little bit different customs, but that's okay, right? And it eventually became worshiping other gods altogether to the point to where God had to punish his people. Questions? Comments. Tidbits I didn't throw in that you happen to know that would be interesting. No. Okay. Nothing? 
The nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, shows us, uh, if nothing else, it shows us the, the, the penalty that we incur when we turn our back on God. Israel had repent, chance to repent after chance to repent after chance to repent. I mean, and it looked like when Jehu came, it looked like maybe we're turning a corner, but no. It always fell back into an improper worship. And as of 722, God's judgment had been meted out. So, let's pray. Father, I pray that when we do wrong, maybe we don't set up our temples and, and worship false gods, maybe we not, we're not going up to the high places and are offering our babies in the Valley of Hinnom um, to Malek or any other god. Maybe, maybe we're not doing the grotesque practices that, that were going on in the days of, of Ahab and Jezebel. But Father, we still recognize that sometimes we do wrong. And, and sin is sin, whether it's ugly or not, whether it's terrible in our eyes or just not really all that bad. We know in your eyes it's still sin. Thank you for the chance to repent. I pray that we don't take it lightly, that we don't abuse the privilege by demanding that you save us. But Father, may we humbly bow before you Confess our sin, admit our wrong, and seek to do right. May we learn from Israel's mistakes. Father, I thank you that your kingdom never ends. Even when we are hard to deal with and prone to error, your kingdom stands firm because you stand firm. You are the one who remains. Even, even when we perish and even when our world perishes, you still remain. Father, you, you do your work in us. Help us to glorify you today, tomorrow, and in days to come. In Christ's name, amen. Next time we'll talk about the southern kingdom. Go ahead and if you want to keep these. And like I said, if you know someone that might find this information helpful, feel free to share it with them. Um, just let them know. Let them know that... Uh, and if you want to copy down the name of that book um, that these came from, it's called A Survey of Israel's History, and it's by Leon Wood. Back on my Bible here, it's got the Carmel Elegy. Yeah, yeah. And it's got a lot of that stuff you were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's some discussion of specifics, and so you might find a little bit different there than what I've written. I'm kind of, I'm trying, I'm basically trying to give a... Uh, yeah, the historical events. And, yeah, yeah, that's really helpful. Yeah, that's the that's the thing about old Bibles, y'all. Yeah, if you got an old Bible, look in your old Bible. You may have a lot of this stuff in there too. Like you may have a good chronology of events and things. He's got one in his, and so old Bibles are are really great about having that kind of stuff. Newer Bibles don't do that so much, I guess, because you can find it online. But <laughs> she's got to get her eyes on. I'm not there yet. I don't have to have my eyes on. Is all Bible?
Some Bibles don't have that kind of stuff now, but a lot of older ones did because yeah. that you didn't have a, you didn't have a library to look at, you know, click a few buttons on your computer, you know, and so so people needed that. It's really good to have that. Just keep in mind that with this, some of those dates are best guesses. So and and the dates that I'm giving you are best guesses. So some of these things might be a little, you know. We don't have, they, they weren't using our calendar and recording exact dates, so, so, you know, there is some, there is a little bit of leeway there, but as long as you keep that in mind, those can be really helpful. And that other old Bible that I, got, that I had read down, that's about to find some more information. Oh, yeah, I'm sure you can. That thing had all kinds of stuff there. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> That's interesting, but it, it, it doesn't want to stay in my head. You know, it's just one of those things. It's like, what? James, James said, it's pretty warm today. I said, well, you've been in the mountains for the last few days. You're used to the cold. It's <laughs> <laughs> like y'all had this time. Just, oh, yeah. They, they, it's so nice to get away. They enjoyed it. And I enjoyed it. I got tons of reading them, too. So, so normally I try to read 500 pages a month. I read 100 pages on this trip. Oh. Yeah, that's not normal for me. I don't normally get that much reading. Do we need to turn anything off? I'm going to go that way. You're going that way? Yeah, okay. yeah I've got to go that way as well. Okay. I'll, I'll turn these lights. I want to. I'll lock the doors. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I got that. How did y'all get in? I okay. I had the key from doing Oh, you had the key yeah. still? Okay. I didn't realize you still had the key. Okay. I, I, I was going to yeah. say. You picked a lot. Were you? I liked it once I came in. 